Yes, we are doing a series uh, that we've been looking at, the radical love with radical results. And, you know, just using the words radical it doesn't always have the right feedback that I would always want because like any English word or any as culture shifts, sometimes words take on different meanings. And uh, radical uh, can have a very negative connotation. If you want to be politically correct nowadays and there's a group of people that you want to marginalize, you just put the word radical in front, like radical right, or uh, you know any other uh, way you want to describe people, you know, or extreme. Use the word extreme, extremely liberal, uh, and that's supposed to be you know a negative uh, connotation. Although many people would say I'm quite happy to be radical right, I'm quite happy to be extremely liberal, whatever uh, place you fall in. Uh, but I am saying this, uh, forget about those terms. Uh, uh, when I'm talking about uh, being radical, uh, there's something in Jesus that when we talk about Jesus' radical love, we all can do well by experiencing radical love. I mean, something that's not just humdrum, something that's not just kind of average, but extreme love uh, is very uh, magnetic. Uh, We desire it. We uh, love seeing it. We love experiencing extreme love, and we love to see God do things in us which transforms us and changes us, you know, uh, does things which are just delightful. The challenge we have with normal is when we use the word normal, normal normally means like it's normal to us. So uh, what's normal for us means that anything that's not normal is extreme. Uh, the, The challenge that we have with our normal is our normal doesn't always line up with Jesus's normal. When we look at the life that Jesus lived, it was radical. And all of a sudden, our normal life, our comfortable life, Uh, when exposed to Jesus, becomes uh, delightfully uncomfortable because Jesus has a way of uh, shaking us, of pressing us, or uh, challenging us, or wooing us, or drawing us, is always challenging, whether it's intellectual, uh, whether you you want to sort of get into a debate with Jesus, or you want to argue with Jesus. We find again and again in the Bible, those who want to argue with Jesus sort of have a problem. I mean, it's kind of tough to argue with somebody that really knows your thoughts before you express them. And, you know, and it's, it's kind of interesting when you follow Jesus' logic when he's arguing with, when people are challenging him or arguing with him, because he doesn't even follow the logic. He doesn't often even answer the question people are asking. He just knows where their heart is. And he knows what's behind the question. And he sort of answers that. So uh, it, it is a wonderful experience for us to encounter the radical love of Jesus uh, because it shakes our norm, what we've expected, what we perceive to be normal. And God says, no, wait, let me show you what normal really looks like. Normal is actually pretty radical if you're hanging around Jesus. Uh, but the other thing that's exciting is Jesus' promise to us that his normal, which is pretty radical, is a rich and rewarding life. It's not a boring life or it's not a challenging life, which is just challenging and exhausting. Uh, But you will stick out. You will be uh, different. One of the the statements that uh, Jesus makes is this idea that uh, he's got a plan and he wants us to do work and uh, he wants us to do the only work 
that he's planned for us to do. And so we think the only work, I mean, there's a lot of things Jesus would like us to do. What would be the only work that he wants us to do? Jesus often has a way of narrowing down complicated situations, complicated backgrounds, and, uh, you know, he narrows them down. So, uh, for instance, in the Old Testament, there were a lot of laws, 730 laws, which people had to obey. And Jesus kind of shakes them all down into two. And it's just delightful. You know, it's like, okay, I can comprehend two. But, you know, 700, uh, not so easy. And he says, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Great. It takes the whole Old Testament, two. But occasionally, Jesus actually narrows that down into one. And uh, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And today, I want to look at another one of those that Jesus shakes down into one. He says, do the only work that I require of you. The only work. You think, wow, okay, so what is the only work that God is requiring us to do? Uh, you know, I just read right over that in the Bible. I've never really paid attention to the only work that Jesus wants us to do. So I, uh, I, I do want to uh, look at that. Uh, one of the challenges when we think about ho the only work th that God wants us to do is this. Uh, God works through leaders. He works through church or the synagogue and uh, there's, you know, people like me who uh, run churches and uh, try and do God's will. What we do pretty well, but actually pretty badly, uh, is uh, we as leaders love to follow rules. And uh, what we do pretty well, pretty badly, is we love to, like, tell you guys, like, what the rules are. And we also like to evaluate pretty well, like, are you following the rules? Often it's my rules, but we've kind of customized it in religious language. Uh, and it'll go along these lines, you know. The Bible says that you should, and you can fill in the blank of what you should be doing, don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex, don't blah, blah, whatever, you, whatever the thing is that you should not be doing. And uh, it's pretty easy for a leader uh, to uh, look at your life and say, look, here's what the Word of God says, and you are not doing that, and I am the leader, and I'm going to point this out to you, and you need to change your behavior and shape up. Traditionally, this is a huge problem with church. The problem that we have is this. I am not the Holy Spirit. I can condemn you, I can speak badly of you, I can make you feel bad, but what I cannot do is convict you. Now, what the Holy Spirit does really, really well, and it's quite delightful, is when the Holy Spirit convicts us, our lives then do line up with the Word of God, but the huge difference is it's self-inflicted. It's like we're self-motivated to want to do what God wants us to do, and that is a delightful thing. Now, when leaders point their finger at you and tell you, you know, you need to do, you need to do, you need to shape up, you, you know, you not delightful. It just gets ugly. When the Holy Spirit does it, it's delightful because our lives get transformed and we change from within and everybody notices it. And we do it with incredible amount of freedom and incredible amount of joy. So I want to just like pause there and just recognize that as a leader, you know, I can inflict unintentionally 
uh, a lot of pain on people in trying to get people to become disciples of Christ or behave like I think they should. There's a difference between that and what the Holy Spirit is saying and doing in your life. I mean, it's just like a huge difference. And so the greatest wisdom that I can have is to have the discernment from God to know what is it that God is doing in our church or what is it that God is doing in your life specifically and how can I encourage you to cooperate with what God is doing and to ignore what God isn't doing and just like, okay, you know, other areas of your life might be a mess, but that might not be what God is working on at this point. Just like, let it be. It's a, it's a wonderful thing when we got the Spirit of God that's just giving us life. So let me just invite the Spirit of God. Jesus, we just welcome you here this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you that you'd speak to us, that uh, you would make it real clear how and what it is that you want us to do. And uh, Lord, that we could, you know, live under that joy of your conviction. And Lord, what we as people say that our ink is incorrect or is unhelpful, Lord, let it just fall off or roll off. But Lord, we welcome your Holy Spirit. We just ask for you to move this morning. I ask you to put power on my words. Otherwise, I'm just standing up here babbling. But Lord, I just ask for your power. In your name, Jesus. Uh, amen. So I do want to look at uh, this question. Uh, what exactly is it that Jesus would like you to do? And so uh, I uh, really want to point out in the Bible where it is so that, uh, so that we can read this together. So if you've got a, a Bible that you're following along in the paper version, make your way to John chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 29. If you're an electronic version, why don't you uh, get the New Living Translation? Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 29, and it's going to seem like the first time any of you have heard this. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. This is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. I mean, okay, so here we are boiling down all the things God wants us to do, what we think God wants us to do, what we ought to be doing. God says, the only work I want you to do is to believe in the one God sent. Uh, so it's quite a uh, delightful one-line phrase of what God wants us to do. The only work God wants us to do is to believe in the one he has sent, that God has sent. Very quickly, uh, you are doing probably instinctively, it's like, where is that in the Bible? And like, where does that fit in? Like, where is this being said? What was going on? Uh, you don't read the Bible just like one verse. One verse fits in one sentence, uh, after another sentence, it's in a paragraph. The paragraph is in context with the chapter. And this is a great example of wanting to look at this in context. In context, uh, we, we back up a little bit to verse 27 through verse 29. It says this, But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the internal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work that God wants, you, you, uh, wants from you. 
believe in the one he has sent. Okay, so we get the idea that uh, these guys that Jesus is talking to, they impressed by something that God is doing, and they say, yeah, we also want to do the work that you're doing, and, and how do we do that? And we realize that the question they are asking and the answer that Jesus is giving them is sort of like there's a disconnect because the question they're asking uh, isn't uh, to pursue Jesus. It is to, it's to do what they want to do, not to do what God wants to do. But again, we look at this uh, story in the bigger context. Okay, so what's going on here? What is it that they saw Jesus doing that they want to do? And uh, this is in context of the beginning of the chapter where Jesus feeds 5,000. So we realize that uh, Jesus has fed 5,000 people and uh, they recognize that this was a pretty incredible miracle. And uh, they're wondering, hey, how can we do that sort of stuff? How can we like do miracles or how can we feed uh, 5,000 people? Not only that, uh, once, they've, once the people have seen Jesus do these miracles, they do the very human thing that uh, most of us would do is we recognize that this person is like amazing. And so if somebody's amazing, we always want to make them the hero. And the way you make somebody a hero in those days is to make them the king. They decide, okay, we love the way that you did all those miracles, the way you fed 5,000 people. The obvious conclusion is you're a great guy, Jesus. Uh, we're going to make you the king. We want you to become the king. Again, there's this huge disconnect because Jesus says, I am the king, but I'm a king of a whole different realm. And what you're trying to make me is like in your image. You're trying to make me something much smaller than what I really am. You think that you're going to promote me to be your king, but you're actually demoting me. And so, you know, Jesus got this recognition of where people are at, but where he really is and who he really is. And uh, he just explains this to them. So let me just back up a little bit here. So we're back here in chapter 6, uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then at the end of the uh, story here, you know, they pick up the pieces that, and they fill 12 baskets with the scraps left uh, over after people had eaten, you know, the, the bread and the fish. And then on verse 14, when the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. Verse 15, when Jesus saw what they were, that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. So again, Jesus said, wait a bit, this is not the trek. Uh, invariably, we have plans for God, and we want to impose our plans on God. Uh, we're not so good at listening to God and taking instruction from God. We're great at like extrapolating or thinking that we're smarter than God or whatever. And in this particular case, Jesus says, okay, I've just done this miraculous sign. The people are tracking with me. They've totally mixed motives. There's a misunderstanding. And Jesus actually has to run away and hide and disappear. And so he does. And uh, we don't get a lot of description of how he did that, but we get a description of what happens with his disciples. His disciples are like, okay, where did Jesus go? Uh, we stuck. And so they're sitting, uh, waiting for Jesus, and it's getting dark. And so the disciples are like, where's Jesus? I don't know. He's gone. He's left us. It's dark. Now what do we do? 
They're like, we better get home. And like, we got like, you know, three or four or five miles to row this boat and get back. And so they hop in the boat and it's, it's dark and they head back. And it says here uh, in verse 16, that evening Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and they headed across the lake to, to Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down among them and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water towards the boat. They were terrified. I mean, it's like Jesus just doing one natural uh, miracle after another. You know, when, when Jesus turning the, the bread into like excess and the fish into the excess, it probably wasn't like that spectacular. You know, it's like people are just like noticing this enough and you eat and they pass the bucket and they pass the thing down and, and they eat and somebody else eats and you know, you, you don't like notice anything spectacular, except when you step back and you say, wait a bit, how come it didn't run out? It's an intellectual process. This is a miraculous thing. You're not feeling anything. You're not shaking. You're not, there's no like necessary presence of God. It's just like, how did that happen? But now they're in the boat and the storm picks up and Jesus is walking on the water towards them. It's like, wait a bit. This is a whole different level of miracle. It's like, this is spooky. It's like, who, what? Yeah. And they, and then I don't know if you read this. Uh, it's pretty crazy the way this ends. Jesus gets to the boat. He doesn't like calm the storm. The boat just like goes into some super fast mode and instantaneously it's at the beach. I mean, just like out of the storm, it's, they arrive. I'd love to be on that boat. Like, what happened? Was that like jet propulsion or I better read this story because you guys think I'm making it up. I know you are. So uh, they had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called down to them, do not be afraid. I am here. Then they were uh, eager to, then they were eager to let him in the boat. And immediately they arrived at their destination. Jesus gets in the boat. Immediately they at their destination. I don't know. There's not a lot of elaboration on that, except they arrive with Jesus and they are like pretty surprised. I mean, life is not like just going along as normal. You know, life with Jesus is full of twists. Sometimes it seems so ordinary. I mean, we're going along in our life with Jesus and it's just like, well, events just kind of worked out. It just happened that way. And you, know, you didn't get any buzz. You didn't sense the presence of God. And you look back and you're like, Oh my gosh, God's hand has been in everything. God planned it. This is not a coincidental meeting. This turned out to be miraculous. Uh, and other times, you know, you sense the supernatural, miraculous hand of God, and you sense His presence, and it's like there is something happening. And it can be terrifying, and it can be exciting. I mean, I think it would have been terrifying seeing Jesus walk along the water in the middle of the night and there's a huge storm. Uh, it would have been pretty weird to just like all of a sudden you arrive after you're rowing your heart out and you're getting stuck in the middle of the waves. And yeah, so they were pretty excited. And it's in this context. Now we're starting to get to where this story is, is, is going. And so Jesus feeds the 5,000. They show up at, you know, four or five miles down the, down the beach. Capernaum. Think of this. The, the average crowd didn't see Jesus walking on the water. The average crowd didn't see that the boat showed up. But the average crowd knew that 
Jesus' disciples would be the key to find Jesus. So while they're trying to track down Jesus and make him the king, and they couldn't find him, they realized if I can just keep my eyes on the disciple, disciples, he'll show up or he'll be with them soon. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. So a whole bunch of other boats come from the other part of the lake, and uh, they show up, and uh, they're pretty curious because they understood the way it ended. It was dark, and Jesus disappeared. And these boats are now way down the beach, four or five miles away, and it's daytime, and Jesus is with them and with the disciples, and they're scratching their head, and they're thinking there was only one boat on the beach, and that was the disciples' boat, and Jesus wasn't in that boat, but he is down the shore with his disciples. So when we pick it up in verse 22, it says, The next day the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized that Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into, their, into the boats and they went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and then asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? No kidding. These guys are really tracking Jesus. They realize that there's something naturally supernatural going on here. And this is where the discussion starts. Now we're into the, into the discussion. They ask the question, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus doesn't answer the question. I mean, like Jesus can be super frustrating. Sometimes people just ask a simple question. You just expect a simple answer. And Jesus gives like a convoluted answer or a backdoor answer. And then you kind of read it and it's like, what was actually the question originally? When you like slow down and you think about what Jesus is saying, invariably, he's like, not interested in the question, he's interested in the heart. He knows where that question is coming from. And so we see it here. The question is, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be uh, with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Okay, Jesus is like saying a whole lot of things here. The average person, like you and me, would say, Jesus, you know what? I need some help. Like I'm battling with my job. I could do with a bit of extra cash. You know, I'm stressed out. Like just help me out. And uh, if you just help me out, if you just like give me a break, uh, you know, help me fix my car or just help me get a better car or help me get a better job or, you know, help me find a nice girlfriend or help me find my spouse i'll just be all set that's really all i need that's what i want and jesus is like yeah 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 okay that's that's kind of superficial i can do that no problem but really there's a whole bigger issue here there's a much more important issue here and that's really connecting with me uh, if you connect with me uh, i can take care of all those things but the most important thing is you connect with me if you can have relationship with me, your life will be like really exciting. It'll be super enjoyable. I'll take care of all the basic needs and then some. And that's the dialogue that's going on with these guys. In fact, it's a little bit worse because they're not just questioning like, Jesus, can you help us out with a bit of cash? Uh, can you help us out do a few miracles? There's a sense of like, we don't believe, we sort of believe who you are because you're doing these incredible things, but we don't really believe who, what you're saying. And there's this discourse which is going on. 
And that's at the heart of this question. Because as you drop down to verse 30, uh, they answered Jesus back when he said, this is the only work that God wants you to do, is to believe that uh, God has sent him. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. We can relate actually better sometimes to the problem kids than to God. Often God will do awesome things in our lives. He'll do miraculous things in our, in our life. And we're like, yeah, okay, but that was then. You know, I need you to do like something miraculous now. I mean, I know you bailed me out in the past, but can you bail me out now? Can you do it again? And we ask God again and again. The big point here that Jesus is making, he's saying to these guys, look, it's not about you become miracle workers. It's not about how I you know, fed 5,000 people. It's not about becoming the king. It's not about all these things. The one thing that God wants us all to get, the one bit of work that God wants us to do, is to work at believing in Him. And even with that phrase, there's a sense of, what? Work at belief? It's like, it doesn't ring well. You know, it's like, I thought just belief is belief. I mean, what do you mean, work at belief? How do I work at believing? How do I work at, ah, and Jesus saying, now we're talking the right language. Because if I frame it this way, Jesus, he's saying if I frame belief as work, then we're in the right mindset. It's like, this takes effort. Work takes effort. And Jesus said, it's going to take effort to have faith in me. Uh, you need to put on your head, your thinking cap, you need to engage your brain. It's going to take mental effort to have faith. And not only is it going to take mental effort, it's going to take physical effort. You're going to actually have to do stuff. Uh, you're going to have to actually respond to the faith that God is asking you to have. There is work which is involved in believing in God. It's intellectual. It's physical. It involves your emotions. It involves your thinking. It involves your schedule. It involves your pocketbook. It involves you. It involves all of you. Uh, this is the work that God is talking about, and he captures it so well. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one that God has sent. The only work. Ah, yeah, it's really intriguing. That's why uh, we haven't noticed it. Now, I want to uh, point out, because I'm pretty aware, that for many of you, you're like, I've just never seen that verse in the Bible before. And uh, some of you are saying, I've been a Christian for like 10 years, and I just never noticed this one-liner. I want to just like, cut you some slack. That's because you've been reading the wrong Bible. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, but, you know, if you read the New Living Translation, you'd <laughs> you guys are going to misunderstand me. Let me uh, tell you how it is in the translation you got. Uh, you got probably one of these translations. In the New uh, Living Translations, as I've read it many times, it does say it the way I've said it. We want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, the only work God wants from you is to believe in the one he has sent. Now, if you're using the NIV version, which is very popular, uh, they, it goes this way. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of the Lord, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There's a switch. This is the work of God. And if you're reading from the ESV version, English Standard Version, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? The works of God. Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Or back to the NLT, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Sometimes it's really helpful to read different translations because in doing so, you kind of get a different facet of the text. And uh, that's one of the reasons actually why I've uh, switched over to the NLT version because it's new for me and it's fresh for me. Uh, but there's also another reason, I've said this in the past, is when they come out with newer translations, there's an, a, a huge benefit because they're working on the basis of all the previous versions that have come out. And so they can take the text and reanalyze them and look at the original language and say, how do we, better, how do we best say this? And, uh, you know, you see this progression uh, of translations. So let me just go back. You know, some people are like, hey, I just want the only version, which is the authorized version, which is the King James. Uh, for those of you that like this sort of stuff and you like Shakespeare and where's my friend there, Bob, who's a linguistics-like guru, I, you know, I've got to go slowly on this. This is a King James version, the same area, same verse, 28. Then, they, then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? I mean, it's so clumsy. I mean, I'm sorry if you're like into Shakespeare. It's so clumsy. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. And I'm like, okay, great. It's super nice. Uh, which, you know, okay, if you love that version, just stick with it. If you love the ESV, stick with it. If you like the NIV, stick with that. They're all good. But NLT's got its own uh, place. Let me just put some sort of language to this idea, okay, what do we do? How do we put this into practice? What does it mean to do the work that God is asking? If we're going to truly uh, be resp responding to Jesus and we're going to, like, okay, believe in him and do the only work that God wants us to do, what does that look like? Uh, uh, you know, I want to point out three things as we can respond to Christ in doing the work because it does take effort. One is doing exactly what you people are doing today. I think if I could think of three basic things that we could do. We could attend church, uh, we could attend small group, and we could find some way of serve, do, uh, working in service to God. Some way of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my time, my talents, my energy. I want you to just ponder this for a moment. Attending church is far more beneficial than I think we realize. Think about, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, think about what has happened in your life while you've been at church? What good things have happened in your life while you've attended church? You know, as I was processing that in my life, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like all the biggest, most important, most awesome things that have happened in my life have all happened in church. I mean, firstly, I came to know Jesus in church. For me, it was in church. I got married to my wife. I'm really grateful for that. In church. I remember thinking my priest was a little weird because I want to get out, married out in the, you know, under the trees somewhere. And he said, I'll only marry you in a church. I mean, I was in the Episcopal church then. It had to be in the church. I'm like, okay, no problem. I'll find an Episcopal church out in the trees, out in the mountain, which we did. But we got married in a church. But it was in church. It was in church. You know, I've witnessed God's miraculous hand of physical healing. I've seen people get like crazy healed. I mean, in church. So I've experienced, like you, at times where the power of God has been just like so unbelievable. 
in church. Uh, sometimes it's been at a conference. I mean, God spoke to me prophetically that totally changed my life to become a pastor. It happened in church. I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for attending church. I mean, I, I just it just like blows my mind when I think of all the things that have happened in church. And as we've raised our kids in church, I've looked at how their lives have been uh, transformed. And I think about the crazy things we've done with our kids in church. You know, I think my daughter was on the mission field with us in the Dominican Republic where Bernadette's going, you know, when she was like eight or 10 or something. I mean, yeah, it was scary. Yes, she could have got sick. Yes, all sorts of bad things could have happened. But you know what? It was awesome. It transformed the whole thinking because we were part of church. It was in church. It was in church. It was great. And uh, in a similar way, you know, how do we experience God? How do we put this faith into practice? How do we pursue God more? Well, in small groups. And the reason that small groups make such a big difference is that we are put together with people that are very different to us in different walks and different levels of faith. And we can, you know, it's like it's caught, not taught. You like listen to people's stories and you see where they're at. And it's like, wow, God's alive and at work. And, and when you associate yourselves with good friends, you make good friends. And, you know, the worst time to try and find a friend is when you need a friend. When you're in a small group, you sort of accidentally make good friends and then when you need them they're there you know you know who's the right person who you know who's the friend that you need to have a small group is a mysterious way where we surround ourselves with people that know the lord and are walking the walk with god and we can you know flesh out this walk we can ask the questions we can be inspired by those around us and likewise uh, in serving in the church or serving god in any way it's an awful thing to serve out of guilt it's a wonderful thing to serve because you feel inspired like you want to serve. In fact, it's a huge privilege and sometimes very difficult to find a place to serve where you can be used by God and experience the joy of God using you and working through you and you blessing other people as you serve God. It's not an easy thing to find that niche, but when you do find it, it is so life-giving. Then it really makes sense, you know, that giving is such a blessing. It's better than receiving. But if you do it out of guilt, it just sucks the life out of you. You do it because you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. And you, it's just like, really, it's really a blessing. Radical results come as we pursue God. And we allow God to pr produce the radical results in us. But if we just get this one thing, the one thing is, it's all about Jesus. If we can just focus on Him, if we say, Jesus, it's all about you, I've got to peel back all these other things. I've I, I got to peel back, you know, bad church, bad leaders, bad experiences. I've got to peel that all away. i just got to stay focused on you. And Jesus, can I get more of you? Can I receive your love? Can you inspire me again? Will you fill me up? Will you guide me? It changes everything. I mean, it, life is rewarding. It's rich, just as Jesus promised. We need to work at it. It doesn't just happen. Uh, I guarantee you it took work for you to come to church this morning. I guarantee you, like, you probably argued on the way to church. You probably wanted to sleep in. Your kids probably had a different agenda for the day. You've got to press in to make things happen. I mean, it, it takes work. When you do, and you make it, and you push through, and God encourages you and lifts you up, it's like totally worth it. 
It's totally worth it. So uh, let me just uh, conclude this way. Jesus uh, died on the cross. Jesus was very intentional about what work he had to do. And Jesus' work was totally like mysterious. It was mysterious to people of his day, the idea of needing to go to a cross and die on the cross. But again, that work that Jesus did created incredible results. He rose from the dead. He didn't stay on the cross. It transformed society. It transformed each one of us. It released the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. It gave us the ability, all of us, to connect with Jesus, to experience His Holy Spirit, to hear His voice, to be led and directed by God individually, personally. The way God speaks to you is going to be different from the way God speaks to me. What God is asking of you is going to be different from what He's asking of me. And when we connect with God, when we say, yes, God, I understand. I recognize that you died on the cross. Yes, God, I want to receive you. I want to follow you. I ask you into my life, whether it's the first time or the 101st time. We say, God, I need you. I want you. Come, Holy Spirit, move in my heart. Direct me. Fill me. It's life-giving. So Jesus, I just say, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for telling us and reminding us that we can just focus on one thing, and that's you, and doing the work that you desire us to do, which is to have faith in you. And Lord, we just acknowledge that sometimes it's, it does take a lot of work, and you know that. But Lord, we also acknowledge that when you come in our lives, when we allow you to move in our lives, when we allow your Holy Spirit to convict us, when we have the courage, Lord, and the boldness to follow what it is that you're asking us to do, it's so life-giving. It's so freeing. There's so much joy. So, Lord, I just pray for your freedom on your people today, that you'd fill them, Lord, with your love and your freedom and your joy. And, Lord, that they would just peel off everything else that hinders them from receiving your love and your joy. In your name, Jesus, we just lift up. In your name, Jesus. Amen.